Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did and how. Episode 197. Three more to go until 200, dear listener. Last episode ended with the young Dr. Shipman getting his future wife pregnant. Tonight we'll dive deeper into his early life and career, as well as his increasing dark signs of something wicked alongside him came. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Amy, Boo, Brenda, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Connor, Corbin, Craig, Sid, Derek, D-Mac, Emily, Fawn, Florida Man, James, Janine, Jennifer, John, Johnny, Jonathan, Caitlin, Kathy, Christina, Kylie, Lance, Lisa, Lisbeth, Magic Man, Marilyn, Meow, Missy, Nick, Oakley, Andre, Operation Brownie Pockets, Robert O, Robert R, Russell, Sabina, Scortnia, Scott, Sputnik, The Radio, Susanna, The Duggletons, Trent, Val, and Vanessa. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. 
You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. As part of Shipman and his fellow students' physiology coursework, these students carried out experiments on themselves, usually working in pairs. They measured each other's oxygen consumption. There were unpleasant experiments which involved swallowing tubes to measure gastric juices, one which entailed drinking gallons of water to see whether it had an intoxicating effect, another in which blood was taken from airlobes. It was while doing these experiments that Fred again encountered Morphy. When the students did double-blind tests, some taking it, some taking placebos, to monitor its effects, nobody remembers him taking any particular interest in it. But Shipman was already expert at keeping a lid on his reactions. Harold Fred Shipman was a diligent student. He was not particularly noticed by other students, but it was common knowledge that he had a girlfriend, and when she got pregnant, everyone quickly caught up to the news. Back then, having a child out of wedlock was not as big a scandal as it would have been maybe twenty, thirty years earlier, but it was still frowned upon especially if you got pregnant at a young age. The proper thing to do was to get married, and so the happy young couple did. Most working-class mothers, with ambitions for their girls, would have been delighted, but Edna was not. She disliked Fred Shipman from the word go, and nothing she learned about him since even before his crimes, gave her any reason to change her mind. As far as the wedding was concerned, she and George were prepared to stand by their daughter and do their duty. It was a joyless occasion, a quick legalizing ceremony in a register office at Barkston Ash, ten miles, that's about twelve, thirteen kilometers, from Weatherby, on the fifth of November 1966, 
with the bride six months pregnant. The two fathers were witnesses at the ceremony, which was not attended by any of the young couple's friends. Fred Shipman used the couple's address in Weatherby Road, which gave him the required residential qualifications for a ceremony in a register office away from both Weatherby and Leeds. Less than two months into his second year as a medical student, Harold Fred Shipman was a married man. What's more, on the 14th of February 1967, at Harrogate General Hospital, Primrose presented him with a baby daughter, Sarah Rosemary. For the final weeks of her pregnancy and the first months of motherhood, she lived at her parents' home in Weatherby. Both Edna and George melted towards their beautiful little baby granddaughter, but the relations with Fred and Primrose remained strained, and before long the young couple had found a flat near Blackman Lane, in the Woodhouse district of Leeds. The area was, and still is, classic student territory, a warren of narrow streets with two- and three-story houses split into flats and bedsits. The flat was barely half a mile, that's maybe just under half a kilometre, or maybe a bit more than half a kilometre, from the medical school and not isolated then, as it is now, by the fast-moving traffic of the inner ring road. It cannot have been easy for Shippen. His student grant of £340 a year was barely enough for a student to live on, but hardly adequate for a wife and baby as well. Primrose had to give up her job soon after the wedding, when she became too big to clamber in and out of shop windows, and without the support of the Oxtabies, they would have been in serious financial trouble. While his fellow students could relax over a pint in the evenings at the Wick, the medic's favourite pub, only a few hundred metres from the medical school, or go to see groups like the Hollies, appearing at the Union, or use the discounts given to students for theatre and cinema seats, Shipman went home to a flat full of damp nappies and the demands of a tiny baby. With a heavy workload for his cause, finding time to put in enough study must have been hard and no doubt there were times when he resented the way his life had changed. He was just twenty-one the month before his daughter Sarah was born, but instead of celebrating in time-honoured tradition with lashings of alcohol, he typically said nothing to his fellow students. Family celebrations back in Nottingham would also be muted. Any spare money from presents was needed for the baby. At the end of their second year, the students crowded onto the steps of the medical school to hear the results of their exams being read out by the dean. It was a moment of great tension, made more so by the archaic ritual. Some of them had fortified themselves with a trip to the nearest pub, the George, just across the road. The dean, an elderly orthopedic surgeon called Payne, read the results out slowly, to cries of relief from the majority and quiet despair from those few who faced having to take the exams again. Shipman had, unsurprisingly, passed all his exams. 
He never achieved any academic distinctions during his time at university, but his work was always solid and reliable, and he had his second MB, Bachelor of Medicine, the first component of the right A-levels, the second comes after two years at medical school, and the third on completion of three years of clinical work. For clinical work, the students were put into groups, usually of four, and the makeup of these was changed every two months or so, so that students got to work with a cross-section of their contemporaries. Those who worked with Shipman remember him as diligent, hard-working, amenable, and easy to work with. Not very sociable, and he never had any money or time to go partying, but that was understandable considering his family situation. After having passed the clinical work exams as well, Shipman was registered as a medical doctor. He took up work at a satellite hospital to Leeds Hospital, where there were more accommodation for doctors with families such as him. The place he ended up in was Pontefract General Infirmary. The life of a junior doctor is notoriously hard. They work long shifts and have to deal with all sorts of medical emergencies and procedures. A one-year hospital appointment is compulsory. At the beginning of it, a young doctor only has a provisional registration with the General Medical Council, made up into a full registration at the end of the year. The year is divided into two, six months medical work and six months surgical work, under a firm of consultants who are responsible for the supervision and training of the junior doctor. Harold Fred Shipman stayed on in Pontefract for another two years and seven months after he was fully qualified, doing what is known as a senior housemanship. During this time he acquired a diploma in child health and a diploma in obstetrics and gynaecology. It was during his first year in Pontefract, almost exactly nine months, after passing his final exams at Leeds, that the Shipman's second child arrived. Christopher Frederick Shipman was born at Wakefield Maternity Hospital on the 21st of April 1971, while the family were living in a house within the hospital grounds at Pontefract. It was the accommodation that had first attracted them to the hospital. They lived in a solid red brick 1930s part of a complex of a dozen houses. At the time, it was very idyllic. Shipman's work colleagues viewed Shipman in various ways. His peers viewed him as arrogant and aloof, but a very hard and disciplined worker. Staff, such as nurses and senior doctors, viewed him more favorable. They knew him as caring, polite, and very dependable. Among patients, especially women, he was very popular. In hindsight, it would appear that Shipman had a chameleon behavior, appearing borderline rude and arrogant to those below him on the career ladder, and ingratiating and overly polite to those above him. His arrogance could tip over into downright rudeness. On one occasion he snubbed Dr. Surinder Ahulya publicly, at a meeting attended by doctors of all levels of seniority. 
It was such an embarrassing incident that one of the consultants apologized to Dr. Ahuja, describing Shipman's behavior as unacceptable. On another occasion, Shipman, as a very junior doctor, carried out a defibrillating treatment on a patient that had been arranged for the consultant and a registrar to carry out. The consultant was furious. This overconfidence was observed at first hand by Margaret Calvert, a nurse who was on duty in the incident and emergency department during one of Shipman's brief stints filling in there. She was with him when he administered four times the normal dose of diazepam to a girl in her teens who had a badly cut leg following a road accident. She needed a sedative to calm her before her wound could be stitched. Although the nurse mouthed to Shipman that he was already well over the recommended dose, he carried on giving her the drug. The patient suffered no side effects, luckily. But the incident made Mrs. Calvert realize that Shipman was overconfident and did not have a sliver of fear regarding possible negative results from his treatment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was, and am, often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serial killer. Whatever the opinions his colleagues had of him at the time, it is fair to say that none of them suspected him of murdering patients, even when, thirty years later, they had learned all about his exploits as a general practitioner, a GP, none of them had any fears that he had started to kill while at Pontefract General Infirmary. None, that is, except Sandra Whitehead, who, as a student nurse, worked with him during his second stint on the medical wards. It was not until after his suicide that Mrs. Whitehead realized for the first time that he was the doctor she had known during a three-month period about which she has always had quote-unquote bad memories because of the high number of deaths. She remembered one particular day when there were three deaths. She also recalled that on many occasions when patients had died, there would be an empty injection pack by the bed a sign that an injection had been given shortly before death, and a hallmark of what became Harold Fred Shipman's classic killing pattern. The realization that she had worked with Shipman left her shocked, and she described it all those years later as follows, and I quote, Like hitting a brick wall at sixty miles per hour, I felt I just knew he had been killing patients on that ward, and it explained for me why there had been such a high death rate. Quote. It was this very strong feeling that prompted her to go to the police, who took her evidence to the Shipman inquiry. The £21 million four year investigation into who he killed and how he got away undetected for so long. Mrs. Whitehead's information reopened the investigation. At the beginning of the investigation, it was assumed that Shipman began his murderous activities in general practice in Todd Morden and later in Hyde. A few inquiries were carried out initially by the Shipman inquiry into his time as a hospital doctor, particularly after the relative of a patient who died in his care at Pontefract came forward, but there appeared to be no obvious evidence of any crime in the hospital, other than his own abuse of drugs in the six months prior to him leaving. It was initially a fair presumption that he was not killing, bearing in mind it is much harder for a doctor in a hospital to be alone with a patient than it is in general practice, and it would also be harder for him to obtain controlled drugs. However, as a result of Mrs. Whitehead's evidence, a much more detailed investigation was made into Shipman's years at Pontefract. It soon became clear that it would not have been difficult for Dr. Shipman to have been on his own with patients, especially when the nursing staff were busy. It would have been very unusual, but not impossible, for him to be alone with a patient at the time of their death. It also became clear that he could obtain the drugs needed to kill patients without too much trouble, although in later years diamorphine became his drug of choice for disposing of his victims, the strict procedures within the hospital would have made it hard to obtain. 
but there were plenty of non-controlled drugs much more freely available, and several of these, potassium chloride, digoxin, largactil, aminophylline, and valium, could, administered in sufficient doses, have caused or accelerated death. Note that several of those mentioned drugs would not have caused a painless death, quite the contrary. The question of when Shipman committed his first murder is a notoriously difficult question. Shipman himself certified 133 deaths in his 43 months at the hospital, that's three every month, and he was recorded as present at the deaths of another four. Of this total of 137, medical records only exist for 28, and some of these are only partial records. His first six months at the hospital, during his pre-registration year, were spent on the surgical wards. Of the 14 deaths he certified during this period, all were almost certainly natural deaths. There are limited records available, but there are no suspicious circumstances, and as a very junior doctor, Shipman would have been under close supervision. He moved to the medical wards in February 1971, and it is here, while he was still not a fully registered doctor, that he may have killed his first victims. There were 25 deaths involving him during this period, and four of them have been classified as raising cause for suspicion. In each of the four cases, there is not enough evidence to decide definitively whether Shipman actually killed the patient. It is clear, though, from these and subsequent deaths in the hospital, is that his killing began as a means of hastening deaths that were already on their way. This may have been done altruistically, to lessen the suffering of the patient. However, it is more likely they were done to satisfy Shipman's own fascination with death and with the effects of drugs. It was also a safe and easy initiation into murder. By choosing patients who were expected to die, he avoided all suspicion. The first of these suspicious deaths is that of Mrs. Margaret Thompson, a 67-year-old about whom there is very little information. The second, Wilfred Sanderson, a 62-year-old hard-working blacksmith, had had a serious stroke, and the conclusion of the inquiry is that, and here I quote, if Shipman did do anything to hasten Mr. Sanderson's death, the effect could only have been to bring forward the death by a short period. End quote. Similarly, with Mrs. Ethel Fallon, a six-year-old widow with an inoperable brain tumour. The report reads, and again I quote, There are grounds to suspect that Shipman may have entered her room alone late in the evening, and knowing that she was likely to die soon, given her something that hastened her death. End quote. The fourth death during this period is that of 49-year-old Mrs. Edith Swift. Unlike the others, Mrs. Swift's family were not expecting her to die. There is no evidence that Shipman administered a drug to her himself, but he prescribed drugs for her condition that were completely wrong. 
It may have been a death caused by his negligence or by his ongoing experimentation with drugs, rather than by outright murder. Already a pattern of killings was emerging. It was easier to spot because although these were his first murders, they were the last to be investigated, and the pattern in many ways follows that which characterized so many of Shipman's murders while he was in general practice. As in later years, he certified far more deaths as being due to cardiac or cerebrovascular causes than other doctors did. He also recorded himself as present at many of the deaths in the hospital, a very rare event for other doctors. Shipman claimed to have been alone at 33% of all deaths he certified, compared to 1.6% claimed by other doctors. He also claimed in a further 19.6% of cases to have been present with a nurse or relative, compared to 5.7% of other doctors. And he had a much higher number of patients dying in the evening. An analysis of deaths comparing those he was involved with to those of other doctors shows that Shipman's patients were almost twice as likely to die between 6 p.m. and midnight than other doctors. Instead of having roughly a square of his patients die in this quarter of the day, Shipman recorded 42% of deaths in this period. This parallels with the murders he committed in general practice, which were substantially also done in the evening. This was the period of the day when he was free to have unrestricted access. In the hospital, the wards were quiet after visitors left. The patients who died were usually being nursed in individual side rooms, and Shipman was known to be a doctor who was constantly present on the wards. It was unusual for other doctors to be on the wards after 8 p.m., unless specifically called to see a patient. But Shipman was around after his time. His presence was put down by other staff to him being hard-working and caring. But authorities now believe that he cultivated a reputation for being hard-working and caring as a guise for his monstrous, murderous activities. After working in various other sections of the hospital, Shipman moved in February 1972 to the medical wards for six months. It was during this time that Sandra Whitehead worked there as a student nurse in March, April and May. And she was right to remember it as a time when an unusually large number of deaths occurred. There were 126 deaths in the six months that Shipman was there, with him personally involved in 76 of them. To compare, analysis of 10 other six-month periods shows that the number of deaths varied between 49 and 103. The Shipman period exceeded the maximum 103 number by 22%. Out of all the deaths of Shipman's patients, 24 were from natural causes, and there were 34 where there was insufficient evidence to draw any conclusion about the death. Of the rest, 12 gave cause for some suspicion, usually because of the recognizable 
shipment pattern of the time of death, his presence at or near the time of death, and his characteristic method of certifying it. Of the remaining deaths, three gave cause for significant suspicion, and three more are clearly designated as murders. Five of these six deaths are of men, and the suspicious deaths split almost equally between men and women, busting the myth that has grown that Shipman only killed women. It is clear from his time at the hospital that he killed opportunistically, regardless of gender. And with that, we come to the end of part three in this sojourn into the life and crimes of Harold Fred Shipman. I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. Next episode will continue his saga, so as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. What follows is a message to my dear Norwegian listeners in Norwegian. Jeg minner om at min norskspråklige podcast, Seriemordepodden, er tilgjengelig å lytte til både på Spotify, Apple Podcasts og alle andre steder du hører på podcast. Så som de sier i Radioland, følg med. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.